0: thought we'd do something a little bit different this morning because this is a rounding off session and trying to get perspective on all the different components that we've looked at. If you don't mind, I'm going to sit down at the computer and work through the gospel record of John as we might do when we're doing the daily Bible readings. Say we're sitting down with the family and we've read it and we've got time to go quietly through it. So what we've been doing... Two or three years in Mumble's adult Sunday school class. Uh, We haven't got visual aids. We haven't got notes. uh, Others don't. Anyway, we're just going through slowly and quietly, section by section. But the question is, what's a section? (laughs) We're not going through chapter by chapter or verse by verse. We're going section by section. And to work out what a section is requires some... Study some considerations, some analysis of the text of scripture. So what I've been using was, is this uh, file of uh, the gospel record of John that we've worked through over several years, not just me but other uh, brethren as well, particularly Brother Sam Day, from, who's now in rugby, who used to be in Cardiff. Uh, and I put it together as a PDF. So that will be in the folder you can have copies of. And it may be really difficult for everybody to see. I'll blow it up as we go through, but just to get a sense. And you realize how much is a work in progress. And let me say this. I think everything I ever present is a work in progress. (laughs) However much work I've done on it, it's a work in progress, and that's always going to be the case, isn't it? You know, we think we've sorted it, we've got it, we've finished. Well, we, that can't be right. Uh, this is the word of God. We can't exhaust its meaning. We can't derive all the benefit there is there. Uh, and everything is a work in progress, and I'm very happy to say that that's the case, and this needs to be refined and developed. But let's go through and see what we make of it. This is taking those sections then and just turning them over in our minds and just seeing what's the thought pattern, what's the point that we're supposed to take as we move forwards. And as time permits, I'll put in some of the cross-references that we've noticed as we go along. Okay? So if we look at the gospel record, chapter 1, which we've already done, we saw that from 1 to 18 is a reasonable section, like everybody agrees, that between verses 18 and 19, there's a natural break. The first 18 verses are called the prologue, and it is a wonderful, beautiful uh, overview. It's not so much a summary of the contents Sometimes when Christophian writers write about structure or they have a section on structure, what they're actually meaning is a contents list. Right? So this, this section or this book covers these points. And the implication often is that it's linear. You know, the, the, It goes from one to three to four to five and finishes now, we know that's often not the case, that a structural analysis would actually give you the shape of the passage, which is often this uh, delta shape or this c- cyclical shape or something called an envelope structure, or sometimes called a ring structure. The thought turns. And that's the case with these first 18 verses. And uh, we've looked at this, so I won't pursue it in any great detail. But just notice um verse 60 uh, verse 6 right and verse 6 to what's that i i've left out uh, the number 9 if right? i and if you see any errors please let me know right but if you look at this right john bears witness and verse 15 john bears witness so even if that's all that's all the point you take from this that you see that the gospel presents John the Baptist's witness in two little sections, flanking the central, and it's arithmetically the center (laughs) in terms of word numbers, and it is about being born of God. And you understand the huge impact that has when, when John is speaking to Jews about this. Jewish uh, rabbis whose great pride is the fact that they are born of Abraham. This is what makes all the difference in the world to them. They're not Gentile dogs. They're the seed of Abraham. And the gospel record says, but that doesn't make any difference to your salvation. Unless, of course, there was a great privilege in being born Jewish. The Apostle Paul says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. That was the great advantage. It wasn't a status advantage. It was access to the word of God advantage. But they weren't accessing the word of God. They weren't receiving what that word was teaching them. Not all of them, of course. The Apostle Paul says, you know, there is already a remnant, he says. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. So we're not saying that in any anti-Jewish way. It wasn't inevitable. But the Lord Jesus, when he calls in the Gospel Record of John, he says, uh, when John talks about the Jews, he's talking about the rulers of Judah, the, the, the high and mighty of Jerusalem. There aren't the priests and the the Pharisees and the teaching class. And and they were Jews in that they were Judah. They were the, the, the kingly tribe. And the prologue of John says that to become literally the children of God, we have to be born of God. That is the grand theme of the Gospel record of John, so as we go through we you know keep that in mind because that's that 's what it 's talking about, and to be born of God, uh, to be born from above, to let the Word of Christ dwell in us, to receive him in faith, these are all ways of talking about this creation of a new person, a new way of thinking. Uh, which is the work of God working in us. So when we then go down, we have looked again at verses 18, sorry, verse 19 down to verse 32. There are some more subtleties that are going on there, which uh, I draw your attention to. And one of the things we notice is that you can have these patterns within a verse but then that verse is a building block for a pattern which goes across a paragraph. And maybe even that paragraph is a unit that builds up to an even bigger structure. So there are patterns. It's like, somebody said, like fractals. Anyone in, into mathematics here? It's like fractals where you get that that, that pattern at the micro level is the pattern at a larger level, which is a pattern at the macro level. Uh, you think you know, you might think of it like Russian dolls. <laughs> that within, within the doll is another doll, another doll. The, the, these patterns work like that. And you can see what I mean. So that, I just take verse 19 down to verse, as that little subsection. It goes around verse 23. We looked at that. And we also looked at this section. I baptize with water, verse 26, down to verse 31. I come baptizing with water. And that cycles around this central link between Bethabara and the Lamb of God. And on the face of it, you say, well, how's that a center? What, what's the point? Well, Bethabara, where they crossed over the Promised Land. On the day they chose the Passover Lamb, that, I think is the point. Uh, you, know, you know, you've know, got to choose the right lamb if you want to go into the kingdom of God. We have to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how that miracle happens, by which the stem of life down to death is reversed. And just ask one question? Like, uh, I want to just be clear on passing over. Like they passed over the river. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. It's a different word. I'm not, yes, okay. A good, a good clarification is when I talk about the Passover as a feast, it's not the same word as you get in Joshua 3 and 4. That word there, Abara, which is, from which the word Hebrew comes, and it literally means to pass over as crossing the river, whereas the Passover lamb is the Paschal lamb, which is a different word, so don't mix those up, but But this is linking the Passover feast lamb (laughs) with the crossing the Jordan into the promised land. (laughs) Moving on, the second uh, large section then takes us from verse 32 of chapter 1 down to the end of chapter 1, verse 51. And I suggest that the central part is Simon's name change. To Peter. So that chapter is setting the uh, prologue to the side for a moment. What we have, the flow of thought, is John the Baptist, the witness to Christ, shows people who Jesus is, because the Holy Spirit has identified him. Yeah? The one on whom the Spirit descends, that's the one. So he says to his disciples, you've got to follow him. And he makes disciples. And those disciples make other disciples because they go and find their brothers and they bring them to Jesus. And they all follow. Jesus says to them, follow me. And what is it to be a disciple? Well, first it's to see what Nathaniel sees and to declare what Nathaniel declares. That we have found him, yeah. Well, surely not. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. That's that's you know. By the can we come to the end of chapter one? We've reached the climax. This is what it is to be a disciple. To come to an awareness that this man we're following is none other than the Son of God, the declared King. Of Israel, a disciple is somebody who follows him wherever he leads, that they might dwell with him. And if we say that we dwell with him, that's not true unless we walk with him. So those are the lessons that come out. That's the, nothing complicated about that. That's the flow of thought. So my uh, our approach is: that's what is it? The passage is telling us. We're not making this up. It's not the gloss that we're putting on it. It's simply how this flow of thought is developing. That's what we're trying to get at. When we come to chapter 2, you see there, I think, that the first half of chapter 2, from verse 1 to verse 11, if I just squeeze it a bit, verse 1 to verse 11, is a section it has this envelope structure. There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. <coughs> Jesus performed a miracle. And verse 11 says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Well, Cana of Galilee only mentions it four times. Uh, so this sort of defines that section. <coughs> so then you look at the symmetry. And in verse Three, they have no wine. Jesus says, my hour is not yet come. He's trying to say to his mother, I want to teach everyone about my mission here. Uh, If you're asking me for wine, don't you realize you're asking me for my blood? (laughs) Don't you realize that means I've got to die? My hour has not yet come. He's trying to get his mother to realize what's going to be happening. It's, 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 it must have been quite a little shock to her. He says to a woman, what have I to do with thee? Whoa. You know, Mary, Bethel, I'm your mum. <laughs> <laughs> I've got everything to do with you. <laughs> but the Lord is saying, i have got to separate the flesh, the natural from the spiritual. The purpose of God is not born of The flesh, mum. It's born of God. You were chosen to be the woman of Genesis chapter 3. You were chosen to be the woman whose seed would crush the serpent. That's who I am. I'm that seed, woman, but my hour hasn't yet come. So the Lord is introducing his mum to that stark reality of the prologue. It's not of the flesh. Yeah. And she must have thought then, well, yes, <laughs> I was, a, I was uh, approached by the angel. <laughs> it wasn't of my will, it was of God. And then you come down to verse 10, and you have a reference to, thou hast kept the good wine until now. So there's some appreciation of, of the fact that what the Lord is doing is the best. Then you get references in verse 5 and verse 9 to the servants, probably the disciples themselves. And they're the ones who understood what went on. Everybody else is oblivious to the miracle. They don't realize that it's gone on. This is a miracle for disciples. Chapter 1 has been about making disciples. Then chapter 2 is about explaining to disciples what it takes to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It takes the wine of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he turns water into wine. Now, what is this water? So look at verse uh, 6 to 8. There were six water pots. The number six we associate with creation of man on the sixth day. Water pots of stone. What do they need? Water pots of stone. These are very large water pots. Washing. The purifying of the Jews. This was ritual washing. And so Jesus takes the water of ritual washing, which represents the law, and perhaps the law and its traditions, which had emphasized external washing so much that the Pharisees, when they came home from the market, baptized their arms. (laughs) They even had a rule of how high up your arm you should wash. And he turns that into the wine of the kingdom, the new covenant. Because wine is a symbol both of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and wine is a symbol of joy. Wine is a symbol of rejoicing. Wine maketh glad the heart of man. It, it's the basis by which uh, we can be invited into the kingdom. And then he notices it says it contains two or three firkins. Well, that's a very old-fashioned measure. But why two or three? And sometimes people look at these things, they say, oh, there's imprecision. You, know, you, can't, you can't take it too literally because... Well, whoever wrote this didn't know whether it was two or three. Two or three witnesses. It's not imprecision. It's absolutely precise. It's capturing that these water pots were a witness to the miracle. Right? You it's, it's not, see, it's not imprecise. It's an echo of Old Testament scripture. And that must have been quite something. The the disciples looking at these water pots. There's a two-firkin water pot. There's a three-firkin water pot. I say two or three witnesses. Oh, we are the ones who are witnessing this. We're going to be witnesses to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, they're the ones that draw it out. And isn't that what disciples do? They draw water out of wells of salvation only to find that it's the wine of uh, rejoicing I put this in the middle because I think it goes in the middle and I did scratch my head about why that detail would even be given us, they filled them up to the brim any thoughts? they filled them up to the top that's what it means, the top Well, in the parable that this is, how did Jesus fulfill the law? He fulfilled it completely, didn't he? There wasn't one jot or one tittle that would pass away till all things be fulfilled. Jesus filled up the law to the brim. I think that's what it's drawn our attention to. Uh, you know, that. All the law. There wasn't a little bit left. You know, there wasn't a little bit left for the Judaizers to say, uh, "We've got a little pot of something from the law that everybody else needs." He filled it up to the brim. That's what I would suggest there. But there may be other ideas as well. But it's a lovely section, isn't it? And it makes us, as we reflect on this, it makes us wonder. Then there's a surprise. Hello? I wouldn't have picked that. I probably wouldn't have even noticed it was there if we hadn't set it out. And now we're asking the question, why does it tell us that? Is it about they were greedy <laughs> what, what was it? Um, so there we have that that we're moving forward, and then you look at the second half of that chapter, from so verse twelve down to verse. 23 and I think it is a section why because as you reflect in it it says he went down to Capernaum and they continued not many days why because it was the Jews Passover and he went up to Jerusalem and that the end of the section verse 23 when he was come now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover so it's repeated uh, it's Passover time he goes to Jerusalem, so now he's in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's Passover. Here, here's the, the marker. And as you move in, you see, verse 17, his disciples remembered, and verse 22, his disciples remembered. So the section is about what did they remember. They remembered. Now where they went from Cana, where he turned the water into wine, they went down to Jerusalem. And he did something remarkable. He cleansed the temple. But what they remembered was that it was written in the Psalms, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They remembered scripture. The Lord was provoking them to think of scripture. He was going to cleanse the house. So you've got water pots of purifying in the previous instant, now he's going to purify the house in symbol. How is he going to do that? By his death and resurrection. That's how he's going to purify the house. He's going to provide the basis for forgiveness of sins for a house made of living stones. He's going to say that the external washing and the actual physical building of the temple were just symbols of something greater and deeper and his disciples must grasp both of those invisible things to be in the kingdom that's what they must do they, to become the children of god we've got to move beyond the symbol to the reality from the external washing to the internal washing from a temple made with hands to a temple made without hands that's what we've got to do that's what children of god are about They're not children of the flesh. They're not children of the physical things we can touch and see now. They're children of faith, children who live by a belief in their minds that Jesus is real, that his work is real, even though we can't see it, even though we haven't seen him, even though we haven't touched him. It's real that this kingdom to come is not a figment of somebody's imagination. It's going to be a reality, and we'd be called to be part of that. That's what faith is. And the Lord is, the Gospel of John is Taking us along that journey. And on the way, we're putting aside the water pots. We're we're putting aside our our loyalty to the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to go. It's going to go in in not that many years. It's going to be swept away. What are we going to do then? We've got to leave. We've got to go outside the camp as the Lord went outside the camp and live in the wilderness by faith. See how the thought progresses? Uh, when you then go to chapter 2, verse 24, ignore the chapter division, I think we come right down to, how did it show, verse 11. So if I can suggest this to you. From 2.24 to 3.11, because it's about Jesus knew all men. He knew what was in man. That's at the beginning, and verse 11 of chapter three, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen Jesus had insight. Jesus had knowledge. Jesus had been told and taught things by His father about what was in man. Right? And, and the particular context is, is this man. There was a man. There was a man, Nicodemus, and he was a teacher. I'm sorry, he says to Jesus, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, I don't think he was uh disingenuous here. I think really at the beginning of Jesus' ministry they must have been amazed. This this person can do miracles. we'd better find out who he is. And there were there were genuine people in the Sanhedrin. There was Joseph of Arimathea, right? For one. There there were people who Really thought, well, we better, we better look into this. But their the mystification is if he is come from God, why he's bypassed the Sanhedrin? Why didn't God choose the Sanhedrin? I mean, that's where all the, all, all the clever people are. That's where all the truly religious people are. Yeah. How come he's spoken to a guy in the wilderness? <laughs> Not even in Jerusalem. Out there in the wilderness. And now, through a a carpenter from despised Galilee? Not even that. He's from Nazareth. <laughs> and that seems to be what, what Nicodemus is, has got in his mind. They probably have had a discussion in the Sanhedrin. and they said, you better go find out. <laughs> You're the teacher of Israel. You go and sort this one out for us. What's going on here? And the answer is, the spirit blows where it wills. God will choose who he speaks through. It's not for you. To decide who 's going to be the next prophet, the spirit blows the spirit speaks god 's spirit god 's word will go forth as God determines it. You know, it wasn 't that they didn 't realize there were miracles, they just dismissed them because they were on the wrong day they were so they were so in awe of their own tradition. That because he was on the wrong day, they thought, well, it can't be of God, and yet the concept that he was healing these people didn't penetrate that's as blind and as deaf and as hard hearted as one could possibly ever be. Now, imagine somebody doing a miracle that everybody agrees it's a miracle and saying, "Yeah, but you know he's, he's not a Christadelphian. Uh you know we don't know where he came from he's, he's He's not a Christadelphian. Say, so, well, it's just done a miracle. Yeah, but he's not a Christadelphian. Right? So that we would use the label as the determining factor. Well, where did the label come from? It was a it's useful. It was a label to identify a group of believers during a civil war where we were conscience objectors. But you may well find in Africa, in Mozambique, in, in the uh, refugee camps of uh, of Congo, that there are little clusters of people around the Bible. They may have got a pamphlet. They may have, got, got, uh, they may have come to the conclusion themselves. And that, that has happened, hasn't it? People have have worked out the Trinity's not in the Bible. I haven't got an immortal soul. And, and then, you know, providentially, we get to meet them. But because they don't have a label, wouldn't in itself just use it as an illustration. This man is even you know, a million times more exaggerated. This man's doing miracles, but he hasn't had permission from the Sanhedrin. <laughs> so you can understand their, their puzzlement. So go and ask him. So, yeah, but if I go and see him in the daytime, uh, people will think we're supporting him. Well, go at night then. <laughs> so he goes to see Jesus by night. A little bit of imagination on my part. But just the parallel, right? So Nicodemus says, we know that thou art. And the word know is, I think it's the word you might check. Is, I think it's the word to see. You know, there's two different Greek words for know. One means to really know. You can ask, go, to know, appreciate, to know intimately. The other is the ordinary word to see. Right? So I think they saw. They, they recognized that he, was a, he must be a teacher come from God. But they didn't know him in the sense that we have to know God. And that certainly parallels verse 9. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus says, art thou the teacher of Israel? So you see the balance between Nicodemus saying Jesus was a teacher and Jesus saying Nicodemus was a the teacher. There's an ironic contrast there. Then you have the repetition. Uh, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Marvel not, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus feigns to not understand. I think this is, a, this is a technique of, a rhetorical debating technique. He knows, I, don't, I think he knows, Jesus doesn't mean you climb back into your mother's womb because that's impossible, and clearly Jesus isn't saying that. Right? He's, he's trying to retain the uh, superiority in the discussion. I mean, he's the teacher of Israel. He's not used to being bested in argument. This is, this is how he rose to the top. <laughs> he knows his stuff. He can debate with the best of them. Right? Uh, and Jesus says, You've no idea what I'm saying, have you? No idea at all. Because you're thinking as a man, clever as you may be, you're thinking according to the flesh. So he says to him, uh, Nicodemus, how can a man be born where he's old? Uh, uh, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the... He's saying to them, you're just thinking in fleshly terms. Your little rejoinder there is exposing the fact that you have not got the right way of thinking yet because you are of the earth. But then the Lord says to him, and this is really, really important, isn't it? Verily, verily, truly, truly, except a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's the point there? Many of these Pharisees had gone out to be baptized of John the Baptist. Chapter 1 tells us that there were uh, people there, for, you know, priests and Levites had sent Pharisees. And do you know from the other gospel records that they'd asked to be baptized? And John wouldn't baptize them. So, so. He wouldn't. Why? Because they weren't of the right spirit which suggests that what verse 5 is about is not two different births one now through baptism or one in the future immortality true though that is in terms of there are two parts to our salvation one is spiritual birth and forgiveness of sins the other is the change of our nature or the, you know, the, the destruction of flesh and the, the inheriting the divine nature. True, though, that is. Perhaps um, another way, perhaps even a better way of looking at verse 5 is this. You've come to me because you know what John the Baptist has been doing, and he's caused a real stir throughout the country, and now you know that I am. And John the Baptist has told people that I'm the one to follow, and I'm doing these miracles. Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's not just a physical immersion in water. Baptism is not just being pushed under the water, is it? It is actually a birth of a new way of thinking. It's the answer of a good conscience towards God. Unless we're born of the Spirit, unless we're born from above. You know, and that word, again, uh, is from above, unless we're born from above, unless we're born of the word of God, unless that word has really come into our hearts and minds and converted us it doesn't matter if you go under the water what makes baptism true baptism is the conscience which has been brought into existence through the gospel message so as we go from chapter 1 And we go from, we've got to become the children of God by receiving Jesus. And we've been shown what discipleship is, that's recognizing who he is, the Son of God, and and realizing that this hasn't to do with the law, this has to do with the external washing, it has to do with being related to him through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then being made part of that temple of his body, kingdom of God, to, to get a mental Picture to of an appreciation of it coming, uh, and the reality of it, uh, but you've got to be born again. You've got to have a spiritual mind created to see those things. And then verse five is driving that home. Look, Nicodemus, what I'm telling you is, you can't be in the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's not just a it's not just a mental matter. You actually physically reality, you can't be there. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what John the Baptist was doing was in a tradition of proselytes being made, because there's a deep irony there, because if, if Jews had to be treated as proselytes, it suggests that their natural birth wasn't actually a deciding factor. Is it? And that probably is why they were puzzled at why John was baptizing, you know, because, I mean, they go and ask him, why are you baptizing? <laughs> so those are, you know, the questions are good, because they, they Come out of reflecting on this. So, behind the scenes are these other images. And if you thought of the concept of the marriage, then you could go back to, of course, other scriptures in Isaiah and in the Psalms, which talk about the marriage supper. And they probably, I haven't done it, but they, one or two, but they would, I'm sure they'd be coming through. Just want to see if we can uh, move down a bit from verse 12 to 18. Of chapter 3. If I have told you earthly things and he believe not, how shall he believe if I tell you heavenly things? Um, look at verse 18. He that believeth on him, but he that believeth not, because he hath not believed. And so you've got a section of scripture bounded by believing on him. Uh, And verse 14, the Lord's called the Son of Man. And verse 17, the Son of God. So those are twins, aren't they? The twin terms, the Son of Man and Son of God. Jesus was both Son of Man and Son of God. And this is the absolutely glorious center. You see the repetition in verse 15 and the second part of verse 16? it frames that central verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that really is the culmination of that prologue, isn't it? To become the children of God, as he was. He was son of man, and he was son of God. And God so loved the world, he's given his only begotten son, that we should become the children of God. And the basis is Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness as a type. What what Moses did was to take that which represented the power of death, sin in our flesh, the, the propensities, the workings of the natural mind and natural feelings which lead us away from God, to take that same nature... To overcome it in every temptation. Tempted in all points, as his via. Nailing it to the tree. Condemning sin to death. That's what the pattern was. This was God's love to say uh, that he would save us. He would make us his children. If we will look upon the Lord Jesus Christ agree that the wages of sin is death, that that the flesh, in the flesh, dwells no good thing, that the flesh has to be destroyed. We have to mortify the flesh in our lives, that he will be pleased to bring us into the kingdom. That's what children of God means. It's it's amazing. You know, I know this is a verse that's on car bumpers. You know, I know but it is still the most wonderful of us. And when we eventually get to chapter 4, I think you'll find it's in the middle of the whole Cana cycle, as I call it, the Cana cycle. Because so when you come back to Cana, it says, he comes back to Cana where he did the first miracle, and so the whole section is tied together, and symmetrically in the center is this image of the Lord Jesus Christ being lifted up Uh, as an expression, not of God's wrath, but an expression of God's love. So if that is the center, we're now going to sort of work backwards. Some of these uh, patterns are quite complicated, and as I said to you, I'm not sure we've got them exactly right. So this little one here from verse 19 and 20, you can see the repetition. Uh, and maybe this is a subsection of a larger one. Uh, you can see this section is about light and coming to the light and so on. It's not as neat as I would imagine it ought to be if we got it absolutely right. So this is one one wants to keep turning over, keep, keep seeing if, if there's a better way of hearing what it is. But clearly it's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ Or is it the narrative explaining to us that the world is in darkness? It goes back to the prologue, doesn't it? That was the true light which cometh into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. That's why he came uh, came into the world and the world knew him not. It's, I think, an explanation of why it was. That if, if if John is right, if all this is the truth, why did the nation of Israel not see it? Why did they reject it? How could you explain that a man who did so many miracles and who taught so wonderfully and who set such a, a, a unique example, how is it they couldn't see it? Answer, because they don't want to see it. Because they realize that seeing it means changing. It means going against the will of the flesh. And the world doesn't like that. The world loves darkness. It hates the light. That's why they did it. And that's why they turned away. Verse 22 of chapter 3 clearly starts another section. After these things came Jesus into the land of Judea. And that goes down to verse 3 of chapter 4, where he left Judea. So the section head of chapter 4 is getting in the way of a true division there. And you can see this. Look, if you look at verse 23, John was baptizing. uh, And they came and were baptized. And verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he that was with thee, that's Jesus, beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. So John's baptizing him, but people come to John and say, but Jesus is baptizing more. That's repeated in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. It frames this section, which talks in verse chapter 3, verse 27 and 28 of uh, coming from heaven and bearing witness as it does from verse 30 downwards. So you can see that those terms are picked up again. And they flank this concept in verse 29 of the bride and the bridegroom. That's interesting because that's where we were in chapter 2. We We're at the wedding. <laughs> you know? So we get this idea again of the bridegroom and the best man. So even though we think, well, how does that you know, illustration of a wedding, that was your question, Nathan, how does that fit in? It doesn't seem to fit in. We, we come back to it again. It obviously has got a key place there because John is quoted as talking about that wedding. Which then leads us into the, uh, the Samaritan woman. So in our thoughts is, uh, up till now, twice now, we've been uh, thinking about the marriage. We've got some idea who the groom is, but we haven't been told who the bride is. And so we come across a woman, who's sad woman, who's been a bride five times already. And, and, and the one she has now is not really a husband. And what had happened to her, we might think she was uh, uh, you know, a loose woman or a very sad woman who'd been rejected all those times. She'd been set aside time after time. Maybe there was something that was the cause of that rejection in some way, some matter uh, that the law said, you know, if there was a matter of then, with the hardness of your heart, then you could give her a bill of divorcement. So this poor woman knows what it is to be rejected time and time and time and time again. And yet she is the one who appears on the scene when we're looking for who's the bride. Who is she? Surely not her. Yes. Yes, she's the bride. Now she asks an interesting question about, well, if it's not Jerusalem... Well, we know it's not the temple in Jerusalem because chapter 2 has told us it's the temple of his body. So there was an alternative. Well, maybe it's the temple of Mount Gerizim, which the Samaritans revere. And Jesus says, no, it's not. (laughs) So let's just quickly follow that. So Jesus is sitting on Jacob's well. Here's Jacob again. We still haven't left Jacob, the man who went to find a bride and had the vision that God would be with him and bring him back. And verse 12, there he is again. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? So he sits on the well. The woman knows he's sitting on the well. It's been referenced. And the center of that section, I would suggest, is that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So it's making this contrast between what the Jews are willing to have uh, fellowship with and the one Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is going to speak to somebody who the Jews will have no fellowship with. They will have no dealings. She is going to be given eternal life. What's it telling us? Judaism is not the answer. We're not constrained within water pots. <laughs> it's broken out from that. This gospel never was intended to be internal to the Jewish nation. It always its intended To embrace all families of the earth. And the blessing was the forgiveness of sins. That's why this woman can become the bride of Christ. That through faith we can be counted righteous. That's the principle that's operating. It's the only one that will do here. Because under the law they wouldn't even speak to her. She had no chance of coming into the embrace of the Jewish religion. Here's a little section from verse 13 to 15. Uh, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Sir, give me this water. So, the water of the well. It's Jacob's well. But it's not the well of eternal life, not Jacob's well, isn't it? Uh, see, you know, we, say that we, we come and get our water from Jacob's well, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be in the kingdom. <laughs> oh, no, you're not, not because you got that water. See, that's natural descent again, isn't it? Could you imagine if we could uh, turn on our taps every day and the water came out of Jacob's well? Would that be healthy? <laughs> Ruth and I, we've sat on Jacob's well, probably the very one, and we've drunk water from it. Does that make us special? (sighs) You see how easy it would be to to say, I've been on a pilgrimage to Jacob's well. I've drunk water from Jacob's well. Oh. Jesus says, that water, you're going to thirst again. But the unseen well of the teaching and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, that will spring up into everlasting life. He's again taken us from the natural affiliation, flesh and blood, to the things of the kingdom. So then the Lord says to her, verse 16 to 18, go call thy husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, I know you have no husband. <laughs> this is a bit like Nathaniel, isn't it? Under the, under the tree. I know what Nathaniel's thinking about. He's thinking about his wife <laughs> that he's going up to get married to. Uh, so it's like a repeat, isn't it? What, what is said to Nathaniel is now being rehearsed to this woman go and call thy husband. Jesus knows full well that the man she's living with is no husband. He wants to bring her to the true husband, to himself, spiritually, of course. Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. She says, you're a prophet. Remember what Nathaniel says? Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And now she says, you've read my mind as well. You're the prophet. Those those are the the three great things, aren't they? You're the prophet. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus says, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem shall worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We worship. Uh, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. This is one of the nicest uh, examples. This is a good teaching example because I think everyone can sketch that out very quickly. Verses 23 to 25. Uh, and you can see the repetition, and we know that that repetition is significant and I expect most people have got a cross reference to in spirit and in truth back to Shechem yeah, in spirit and in truth and that is uh, really interesting so the Lord is catching hold of of an Old Testament reference uh, in spirit and in truth is in sincerity and in truth The center of that section is God is a spirit. And again, you think that's a difficult expression. But what it means, I think, is this. God isn't bound by time or place. Wherever we go, we can worship God. It doesn't matter if we're not in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if we're not in Gerizim. Wherever we are, whatever situation we are, we can worship God. Yeah? Even if we're in Wales. Even if we're in Seattle, even if we're in California, even if we're in Texas, doesn't matter where we are. Even if we're on our own, uh, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what the Lord is trying to say. So children of God, worship God in spirit and in truth from their hearts. They don't need externalities. They don't need to be in a holy place. They don't need to sit on a particular well. They can worship God wherever they are. It's about faith, not you know, physically being part of an organization or uh, you know, in a particular... i mean It's a wonderful thing to be in this room. No idea how pleased we are to be here. You know, it's a great thing. But even if we can't come, even if we have to live out there uh, you know, on the prairies on our own, it doesn't matter. We can worship God in spirit and truth. That's what we've been told. And and they believe it. Look, the Samaritans believe it. This is an amazing thing. You go from verse 27 down to verse 42. And come and see a man which told me all the things I ever did. Is not this the Christ? They say, we believe not because of thy saying. We have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ. And what is so remarkable about this Is that they believe because they heard, right? Jesus didn't do a miracle there. They believe because of what he said. When you go to the next section, he comes to Galilee and Jesus rebukes them because they ask for a sign, except he sees signs. He will not believe. But the Samaritans believe without a sign. And Jesus says you know, that they represent the harvest to come. In other words, it's the Gentiles who are going to form the harvest of this gospel proclamation. People who are going to believe having not seen. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Right? You have not seen and yet believe. That's what's so important about the word of God. Why, why we want young brethren to start studying and start you know, being powerful in exposition because it is that word of God which convinces. That is what gets into people's hearts and minds. That's what changes people's thinking. And so the Lord leaves Samaria, goes up to Galilee, finds that... He, He's not readily accepted in Galilee as he had been in Samaria and rebukes them. The man comes to him and says, my son is sick. And Jesus says, except he sees signs. He says that not to be cruel to that man, but to draw attention to the fact that people's belief in Galilee is so hooked on seeing wonders and not on what he is and who he is that they are in danger of of losing it. And I won't dwell on this or just draw things to a conclusion now, but we haven't left Jacob behind even now. It's a very poignant incident in Jacob's life. They come to Jacob and they say, Thy son liveth. Joseph is yet alive. And he didn't believe it. Go back to Genesis, he didn't believe it. And then when he saw all the wagons outside, he had to concede something must have happened. Thy son liveth. So that, I think, is bringing us to the the circle and where did that happen Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine so we've gone on this journey from Cana and back to Cana and we've gone from death the blood of the sacrifice the wine to the resurrection from the dead Thy son liveth by the word of God it's it's a beautiful cycle in that cycle we've thought about Jacob thought about his journey through life. We thought about how God directed him to find a bride. We thought about who that bride might be. Uh, it, it, it's a Samaritan woman. It's a despised sinner right, who has been able to drink of the well of eternal life by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, by hearing his word and recognizing and receiving him. Isn't that gorgeous? That, that's how the, the gospel turns our thinking as we move forward when we come to chapter five i think we start a new section and we looked at that last evening and we're now we're born again we've got to go on a journey through the wilderness from death to life we've got to travel through that wilderness we're going to be tested in our faith we're going to have to depend on god and that is where we are when we get to chapter five and into chapter six.